This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This show where we explore film series one movie at a time, or in this case, uh, one TV season at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Amrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. I, I feel bad doing that opening quote just because I, I could never sound remotely as cool as Pedro Pascal. None of us can, but we can all hope and dream one day. Um, so this week, we are going to be going back into the Star Wars franchise to catch up with all of the stuff that came up while we were enmeshed in the MCU. And today we will be exploring the first half of the very first live-action Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please head over to iTunes and take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Uh, it will be very helpful and we would very much appreciate it. And uh, before we get into the main discussion, I want to talk a little bit about the production story uh, of how this film got, uh, not this film, this TV show, got to the small screen. So this wasn't the first live-action show, uh, live-action Star Wars show attempted. In the mid-2000s, uh, Lucasfilm began developing a show called Star Wars Underworld. Um, producer Rick McCallum, uh, he's the guy who produced all of the prequels, uh, he said it was going to be an adult show, describing it as Deadwood in Space, which is interesting. Ultimately, it got shelved around 2010. Uh, Lucas said he didn't want to qu- uh, compromise the quality of the filmmaking that people w- would obviously expect from a Star Wars uh property and the technology simply wasn't there at the time to make the show at the level of quality that he demanded you know, on a tv budget but he did say there are about 50 episode scripts completed and uh a few months ago a bit of a vfx test footage from one of the effects houses that they were kind of shopping the idea around to came out and it gave us kind of an idea of what the show was going was going for which it, it was very uh grimy blade runner-esque you know these these you know, alleys with the with the, you know, the buildings going way up on either side, the rain, the, the neon. It, looked, it was very Blade Runner, but also, you know, still Star Wars. Did you did you see that? Uh, I've seen, yeah, I've seen some of the images, yeah. They look pretty cool to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that didn't happen. Um, well, another thing is I'm not entirely sure how this show is connected to the Boba Fett movies that were planned, um, because the Boba Fett movie died shortly after this show kind of... Um, started production so i'm not sure that's connected but i'm going to cover that the history of that movie as well um so back in 2013 this would be a year after disney acquired uh lucasfilm disney announced that a spinoff would be written by simon kinberg of x-men fame uh he, he was also working on rebels uh and directed by josh trank of chronicle and the disaster of fantastic four and i i don't remember when when this was actually ever confirmed but at some point it came out that, th- that this was going to be the boba fett film and th- but that that kind of fell apart uh rumors are it was because of just you know the massive bombing and critical panning of the fantastic four film as well as a lot of uh, uh rumors about uh trank's onset behavior and that makes sense simon kinberg was also was the writer and producer on fantastic four and supposedly he had to step in several times to like to film when trank just didn't show up so he didn't supposedly he did not want to work with trank on this film so a lot of drama behind the scenes, but whatever whatever happened, Trank uh, left the project shortly afterwards, after Fantastic Four came out. Flash forward to, to May of 2018, and James Mangold was announced to write and direct a Boba, Fett, a Boba Fett film. However, a few months later, 
uh, Disney put all of the spinoff films on hold, including the Obi-Wan film, uh, due to mm. solo bombing. Like, that was so something like, oh my gosh, James Mangold. And then, like, almost immediately afterwards, nope, it's not happening. Thanks, everybody who didn't see Solo. Yeah, it's all your fault. Uh, but the story of this specific TV show began in the summer of 2017 uh, when John Favreau pitched the show to Kathleen Kennedy. Um, he's got to be very popular at, at Disney now. You know, he, he created the MCU, the Jungle Book, Lion King, now the Mandalorian, just everything he does for them makes lots of money. Um, so then Kathleen Kennedy put him together with uh, a certain fellow named Dave Filoni. Uh, we've never heard of him before uh, to help develop the show. Um, so he was working on the show while he was directing uh, The Lion King. You know, he wrote most of the episodes himself, so he, he had to have been crazy busy at that time. And later in 2018, it was announced that this show would be released on the uh, upcoming you know, Disney's upcoming streaming platform, which is now Disney Plus, and that it would be titled The Mandalorian. So the the series stars Pedro Pascal in the the titular titular role of the Mandalorian, also named Din Djarin. Uh, although it isn't always, it's often not him in the armor. Uh, yeah, that that was that was kind of uh, shocking. I don't know why I found it so depressing. Like, I guess we've been spending like weeks praising you know Pedro Pascal. He's so his acting is you know his physical acting is so good, and then the news came out. Oh, it's not him. Um, however, who the people who are under the suit? Um, there were several stuntmen under the suit. Most of the time, it was it was just it was a matter of um, just availability because, you know, Pascal is a very busy fellow. And you know, if, if he's wearing a helmet, we can't tell. Uh, so the primary guy under the suit was uh, Brendan Wayne, who's actually the grandson of John Wayne. Oh, wow. Um, he was the main guy. And then a Brazilian martial artist named uh, Latif Crowder uh, did like all the hand to hand combat and whatnot. Yeah, so apparently most of the credit for this performance should go to uh, Brendan Wayne. He's got just a real. Uh, every time watching the first episode, whenever he's he's got the guy hooked on the line and he just pulls out the the gun and shoots the panel, like that's just classic awesome western. The series also has a, a lot of regulars. Uh, Carl Weathers uh, is in this as Grief Karga, Werner Herzog as just one of the greatest, like one of the best villains in just a few episodes. But like he can say mm-hmm. anything; and it's incredible. Uh, He's actually not given a name. He's just referred to as the client. Uh, Omid Abtahi as Dr. Pershing, who happens to be the only character in all of Star Wars to actually wear glasses. Nick Nolte as the Ugnaught Kuil. Uh, Taika Waititi as IG-11. And the last regular character is Gina Carano as Cara Dune. So uh, this show was mainly shot in the uh, Manhattan Beach Studios in California, uh, there was a little bit of location shooting in S- Southern California. I'm, I'm imagining that most of that would have been for the uh, the Sanctuary episode. But the majority was shot on sound stages using a very, very cool, fairly exciting new technology. Um, essentially, they would use a, an Unreal game engine and to create digital landscapes. And then they would project those landscapes onto this kind of this domed projector screen that was around the actor so you have the actor stand in the middle of this gigantic circular projections screen and they would project a photorealistic digital uh, digital landscape behind them and they would have the camera digitally you know digitally up paired with the background so whenever the camera moved to, to follow the actor the back the the uh, perspective of the background would just seamlessly change and move with the camera to just 
I mean, to make a pretty flawless looking uh, background. And the crazy thing is, this is this is really old technology. You go all the way back to you know the early early films and uh back projection was a really popular thing if you watch like any kind of car scene in old movies Mm -hmm. and you've got that really janky uh projected background going in there and obviously you know they moved to green screen for a similar um you know similar principle and now all this time later we're going back to projection it's it's pretty cool the first time i noticed this kind of uh, this kind of technology was uh on the film oblivion where uh, you know with tom cruise's beautiful you know sky house and the whole sky around them was projected. It was just really cool and gorgeous. And that movie looks gorgeous. So the the technology is pretty fantastic. Yeah. And then also uh, in Solo, when they were filming the, the scenes in the Millennium Falcon cockpit, they had a, they had basically the same projector screen with you know space projected on it to get the lighting right and the backgrounds. So this is basically that technology, just way more complex. And I'm guessing I'm guessing uh, Favreau having made an entirely digital photorealistic film helped a lot in getting those backgrounds looking good. Uh, they did actually shoot live action plates in like Iceland and Chile to help with the backgrounds, but they were all, they were all as far as I know, digitized uh, within the Unreal game engine. For the series score, uh, composer Ludwig Gorenson was hired, um, and uh, each chapter has its own specific soundtrack album that was released the day that the episode released, which is kind of cool. Like I would download them as they came out on Spotify. Uh, he played many of the instruments himself, and then there's actually a 70-piece orchestra, uh, so that's why it sounds as amazing as it does. As everybody who watched this when it first came out knows, it was released on Disney Plus episode by episode starting with, uh, starting on November 12th, uh, and every subsequent Friday the, the next episode was released in the more classic TV-style uh, release schedule. We're doing the first four episodes this week. We're just going to run through them episode by episode. Uh, the first episode is Chapter 1, The Mandalorian. Um, this one was written by John Favreau. And unless we specify otherwise, all of these episodes are written by Favreau. This one was directed by Dave Filoni in his first live-action project. And it was shot by Greg Frazier, who is the uh, DP on Rogue One and the upcoming Batman movie. That was just delayed. Now I'm sad. Hmm. So we open with The Mandalorian capturing a bounty on an icy planet. He returns with his bounties to Navara and the local bounty hunting guild leader, Grief Karga. He is given another job hunting down a target, dead or alive, for a local Imperial holdout known only as the Client. He pursues his quarry to Arvala 7, where he runs into an Ugnaught named Quill, who agrees to help him so that he can get rid of the pesky local pirates and bring peace back to the planet. Uh, one blurred riding session later, Mando arrives at the pirate's stronghold, but the ill-timed arrival of a rather dense bounty droid IG-11 forces his hand and they form a quick alliance to split the bounty and attack. IG-11 kills everyone and Mando sort of helps. The Mando tr- the, the, the bounty turns out to be a baby of Yoda species. When IG-11 attempts to kill it, Mando blows him away, saving the child. Yeah, so, James, the first live-action uh, t- Star Wars TV episode, how do you feel about this? Uh, I like it a lot. It's it's not the best of the series, um, but I think it is pretty good. Uh, and it, it, does, it does what I think it needed to in that it it created a cool atmosphere and vibe even though i think you could tell feloni isn't like i don't maybe he's not used to live action direction but even despite maybe the direction not always being amazing i think there there's just an atmosphere and a tone that he he's able to create really well um i like all of the characters a lot i like the vibe the, the setting 
Um, so when it, when it was ended, and I, I especially like the the climax of the episode. So uh, whenever the credits were rolling, I was really excited. Yeah, I don't know if this happened for you, but I I feel like there was a a really steep kind of curve for just getting used to what this show was. Um, I don't know what entirely we expected, but I think having watched, having spent so much time, you know, in the Netflix world, I, I was really thinking this would be structured like. My main point of comparison would have been like a Game of Thrones type show or the Marvel Netflix shows where they're very, you know, very, um, a very serialized type of show where it's all just one big story, this very epic kind of movie-like structure. Um, and it was really shocking out of the gate when this episode ended, like, oh, this is kind of sort of episodic and like it, it, it's not, but it, I guess that, that, that shock also came more after the second episode, the child where all he does is, you know, fight some Jawas in the fight of Mudhorn and it's over. It's like, wait, wait, it, it, it was, it was in a structure and style that we're just not used to, especially, especially if, if it's an eight, you know, eight to 12 episode season, I think we just kind of automatically assume that it's going to be a completely serialized single story. And whereas this show was very much going back to a, a, an episodic, uh, you know, kind of adventure Western serial type show where, there is an overarching story, and I think you know there are there are like four story episodes, but the other the other four episodes are all very much just adventure of the week, and it took a it just it it took a uh you know like two or three weeks for me to kind of get my head around that, and after I got my head around, I actually really liked it, and almost and and now it's almost to where I like the you know the 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 story of the week episodes more than the actual story episodes like how how did that structure kind of hit you at first and and did you warm to it or you, what do you think uh so i i don't think that i think for me uh i really like the this week this is the western trope you know like this week it's the magnificent seven next week it's the like it's all of these different <clears throat> excuse of... me it's seven samurai oh yeah sorry <laughs> it's magnificent seven whatever <laughs> yeah exactly um but uh, I, I don't feel like, I think for me, um, it didn't, like, I, I was definitely not anticipating that. But it also, it, it, it wasn't shocking and it didn't feel abrupt because I, I don't necessarily feel like it began to feel episodic until episode four. Uh, like, you know, because I, I, was, I wasn't, even watching probably by the end of episode three, I, I wasn't feeling the this kind of, well, there isn't a an overarching plot because you know, like the first one introduces the the child, and to me, it's like okay, well, so this we're gonna be finding out what like the this season will be discovering what this child is and why they're after it, and then like there's there's that kind of standalone vibe to the second episode, um, but I mean, even even like serialized shows often like they'll. You know, Breaking Bad has the infamous Fly episode, which is fantastic, and people who don't like it are wrong. But, like, there are... Which is directed by Ryan Johnson. Star Wars Connection! There we go. We worked it in. But, uh... So, and, then, and then the third one, you know, bringing it back, kind of closing the loop on this initial uh, contract, and then going to get it. Like, those first three episodes, to me, feel like a, a continuous story. And it, it was really whenever episode four ended... Uh, that I was like, okay, I I think this may not be what I was expecting at first because you know we arrive on the planet, we do their you know they do their thing there, and then we're off, and really we're no further along than we were before, and that's that's where I started to be like, okay, I need to, 
you know, I need to acclimate to what this is actually going to be because I, it wasn't hitting me that way for those first three. Yeah. So as, as far as this episode, uh, I do, I do want to talk a bit, a bit about Dave Filoni's direction. Um, and I think another, another thing that made this, this, in, this introduction to the show a little more difficult for me was that I, do, Dave Filoni just isn't, or at least wasn't at the time of directing this episode, wasn't a great live action director. I mean, he, he does fine. Like he gets the job done. Um, but there was this this nagging sense about the pacing uh, of certain of, of most of the episode that just felt off. Like p- pacing is like one of the most delicate and imperceptible aspects of filmmaking of you know filmmaking. But when it's wrong, you just feel it. And I feel like there's a there's a, a sense of rhythm that's lacking. In it. And this is something that I've noticed with either first time directors or directors coming out of animation. I mean, people not named Brad Bird apparently. Um, but like uh, watching the Call of the Wild by Chris Sanders early this year, which is he was an animation director, or um, X Men uh, X Men Dark Phoenix by um, first time director Simon Kimberg, who also was you know <laughs> who was the writer of the Boba Fett movie. Um, like where there's a feeling where the, the there's there it doesn't have kind of a a natural feeling of ebb and flow and you know rise and fall of action and just like there is if every scene feels like it's paced almost the same where it's just it's doing exactly what it needs to do to get it done to get across what it's trying to say but but not a second longer it's like it's like edited within an inch of its life where it's not rushing but it's, it's just plodding along at the same pace never slowing never speeding up um and what happens is you don't the scenes just come and go and you don't really feel it and as kind of a, a, a aspect of this episode in particular, I think I think it gets better in, in his second episode, but it's just it feels off, and you and it's so it's hard to get into emotionally because there's it doesn't let allow you time to breathe and to get into whether it's an action sequence or a dramatic beat, they all just kind of breeze by at the same speed. Um, is that something you felt at all? I think I see what you're saying. Like I think for me, um, it wasn't so much pacing although like that may be what i was picking up on i just wasn't putting a a word to it um but with like the 37 minute runtime i do remember when it when it ended i was like i as as much as i did like genuinely enjoy this episode and i'm completely sold on this style of the show i was thinking like i wish that there were more tissue scenes you know just like Mm. we've got this plot point and now let's go over here and like just sit in this world for a bit and then the decision is made and then we can move on here. But it, it did like everything did feel just snappy, maybe to a like to the degree of it being a fault where I'm like, no, let's just let's rest a, a bit in this. You know, like we're this is the, the farthest we've been after Return of the Jedi is 30 years later. You know, you you get to introduce us to the immediate aftermath of of the original trilogy. Um and so I was kind of hoping that we'd just be able to settle into the the feeling of this post-war galaxy and and uh, maybe spend, like, less just plot-heavy. Like, all of the conversations in this feel, like, maybe the exception, or even a, mostly with, even with a lot of Quill as well, all of these conversations feel very, very plot-heavy. There's not really just a, here's here's a scene... You know, not that I, it's not that I'm needing scenes to just do nothing, but uh, but yeah. So I I think that's what you're saying is probably what I felt um, was just like oh, let's you know ease up. Don't 
don't feel the need to rush. Let's kind of settle into this world a bit longer. And since we're doing this, like, it probably sounds like I don't like the show. I like the show a lot, and we're going to have a lot of awesome things to say about it. But since we're kind of here, I think I'm going to just kind of dump dump all my grievances out and air them now. Um, speaking of what you're saying about Favreau's writing, I think there's actually a kind of a distinct shift when you watch uh, the Filoni written episode or um, or even the uh, the one written by Yost and Famuyiwa. Uh the, the the writing is so very bare bones in this show. Like there is, there are, are no, as you describe them, tissue scenes. There are, there's almost no just conversations where two people talk about, you know, life and things. It's just, they're very plot heavy, very short. And, and that's, that's also a plus, you know, the film, the show never was as welcome, but I think it, it, it I feel like with this show, Favreau wanted to make a Western. And in space and you know to make a western to take out his star wars action figures and go pew pew and blow things up and do cool stuff and give us a cute baby and he does all that really well but i feel like as much as i love this show there's a feeling of just that it's just really insubstantial and i think a lot of that comes back to the writing because like there's so little there's so little given to these characters to do even the like the there's great characters like they're all great characters but they're only ever given anything to do if it services the plot and there's no, there's no, there's like almost no allowance for personality or character or emotion outside of that. And I, I get it. it. You know, it sort of, it fits in with the Western, the stoic Western tone, but also I don't feel like this show has anything really thematic to say. I mean, you've got the character arc, but like stop for me. I, I think, I think this comes down to two different, uh, two different ways of viewing star Wars. Like either Star Wars is the space western adventure serial, or it's the epic, you know, sprawling. It's the space opera, and for me, like Star Wars is the opera. So when I see something that's just the western, I feel like I want to watch the rise and fall of empires and these gig, you know, these gigantic operatic character journeys and you know, scream, you know, monologue screamed at the sunset. Um, and this isn't that. And so like, as much as I love it the whole Western aesthetic when it ends, I'm like, but I didn't really get what I come to star Wars for in a way. Uh, like how does that, that, that kind of quasi, you know, faux Western, uh, stoicism work for you? Uh, so for me, I, I don't know exactly. Like, I don't think it's, it's the pursuing this Western tone that I, I perceive as like the issue. Cause I, I do have a similar problem with you in that it, like the term insubstantial, you know, like it, and that sounds like such a, like a harsh criticism like you i i do really like this show a lot but it it is intentional so that's there's that yeah um but i i think for me because like whenever you at least for me like whenever i think about the great westerns that i've seen there's often a lot of depth there and i, I think the reason like in in the best westerns not the hotel the the best films uh in the western genre um, there, like when you look at like why this character is this way, like those films are like two hours. You know, they this character does like it may be a trope. You know, like the lone gunman who comes into town, this and that. But you have two hours to explain why he's alone, why he has a sense like this kind of sense of just like what where all of this comes from, and you get to explore this. And like it's those movies that create these tropes, and then like movies 
subsequently like use them, but then they have two hours to explore that. And so because this show often would try to, it, it would kind of like take those ideas, but truncate them into 30 to 40 minute episodes. And so it's in the film, you know, this guy comes and he does this, or he does this Western cliche in that film. It may be a trope, or whatever but there's there's character motivation behind it whereas i think sometimes what i felt here was they did it because it's the trope not because there's like necessarily motive like just a lot of writing done to give us motivation and why this is this way it's just well we're going to do this because is how it's done because i think i think about solo and i think solo cuz i like that movie quite a lot probably more than most i think there's a lot like Many times throughout that film, I just I feel like I am watching a space western. But I also think they do a lot of like underrated and very interesting things with the character of Han Solo, uh, and I think that's because they and not just him, everyone else. Well, too. yeah, and so I, I think because the primary goal for these episodes to me feels like let's take this cool western thing that we see a lot and like this is our forty minute version of that. You don't get to explain the tropes you you just do them um you don't get to mo- you don't get to motivate them uh, as much as they might deserve and so so i i think that even this kind of the space western thing could still work for it and it could still feel star wars i just think because there is so little time and it does feel so trope like we've got to get this in and we've got to make sure that happens it just ends up leaving little room for like character stuff. Mm-hmm. One last grievance before we get to the positives. Um, the the style of this show is is very much John Favreau's visual style when he directs movies. Um, I, I noticed this in Lion King and Jungle Book, Cowboys and Aliens, even Iron Man. It's it's a very loose kind of handheld style. It feels very improvised. Just kind of put the camera up. And let it let it capture the action as it plays out. Occasionally, you'll get the awesome, cool shot, but overall, it doesn't feel very composed. Um, it worked great in Iron Man because he you know he knew when to find those awesome epic shots. Walking away from the tank um, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it was a huge detriment to the Lion King because that's a, an epic, and he shot it like a nature documentary. But and here, I don't know. But for me, like when I think westerns, I think these beautiful like beautifully composed why you know john ford sergio leone these shots that just have so much character and depth to them and this and i think this complaint i have varies from episode to episode i think some directors uh, do it do it wonderful justice others kind of just do the bare minimum it's this 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 series is shot in a very basic handheld kind of just in you know just kind of very improvised indie style and i feel like that is constantly undercutting the westernness of it because i think the western westerns need some austerity and but this is it's very grimy and low tech and some of the episodes just feel like just regular tv cinematography that we could get in any tv show where they're just trying to get the shots and cut them together they tell the story effectively but there's no there's no beauty or character to it a lot of the time and that that was kind of disappointing, especially you know it's it's Star Wars like you want you want some beauty and grandeur, but also it's a Western. <laughs> I also want some beauty and grandeur there. Yeah. Um, and that's not that's not saying that the, the, the show is devoid of it, but generally in its base the bones of its basic style, some directors can get away with it, but it just it doesn't have a lot of you know, that kind of beauty I I expect from both Star Wars and westerns. 
don't know. How did that strike you? I think it, I, I agree. Within this first episode, maybe this the first one and maybe the third one more than others. Uh, I wonder how much of it, especially with these exterior things, like because of the, the technology in this dome, I wonder if that is like that provides some kind of limitation to what they're able to do. You know, you're working in a in what is like a very finite space with that kind of technology. And so there it like the, I mean, it has to it has to limit the length of shots in anyone, anything that's moving. Yeah. No. And so it goes so far. Yeah, and the cinematography feels very, very close quarters a lot. Um, there, you don't get a lot, a lot of like the, you know, what you're referring to, like these grander um, vistas, and even beyond just that, like just. I, I I'm sure that you could still because like some of these episodes I do think are really really well shot with with uh, some amazing sequences. With this first one, it does. It feels like the camera's just kind of set down in the same. Just we're in the same room as the guy pointing it at him. Now he's gonna punch him. Now we're gonna set up a camera here, and we're gonna get a reaction. And yeah, it, it doesn't feel super ambitious or or as if there's a, a like you'll get a few of those shots that I like a lot, like the door opening and him there. Like I think that's a really like that's a pretty cool frame. Uh, and and the mm-hmm. the shots of them like riding the blurgs, I think that's whenever it starts to open up and feel like a western to me. I mean, uh, D- D- Dave Filoni knows how to make things look cool. There are there yeah. are great shots sprinkled throughout. It's more the moment to moment stuff. Yeah, yeah. So those are those are kind of my general issues with it. There, but uh, getting to the actual episode, just uh, you know, it, it opens with the, you know the awesome. Western trope slash cliche: the tough guy walks into a bar, then kills and beats up a bunch of dudes. Uh, did you notice the the stunt man, uh, Tate Fletcher, the guy with the big beard? Like, you see him everywhere. Like in every action movie, he's oh. there, and he's always got the great big beard. <laughs> he's in like the uh, he's in John Wick, The Equalizer, The Accountant. Like it, it, anywhere you look, he's he's around. He usually has like this really awesome waxed mustache that he keeps for every movie. Nice, um, that's awesome. It's kind of funny. Uh, have you noticed him before at all? Uh-uh, but I'll probably notice him a lot more now. Yeah, so he's there. Uh, like, another small criticism. Dave Filoni doesn't use the 180 rule in that in that fight scene. So the camera's just, like, hopping around to random places around the bar, and it's really hard to tell the geography. Uh, the 180 degree rule is essentially where you set the camera up, and, and you keep it on one side. Like, like, draw a line on the floor and keep the camera on one side and just don't cross it. What it helps with is just, you know, you shoot one 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 character from one 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 side facing the other way, and then you do the same for the other character. And so essentially, wherever the camera is pointed, and by the positioning of the character and where they're looking, you can tell where you are in the scene. It's like one of the you know basic cinematography rules. And he kind of breaks it a couple times. It's, it's like really jarring. You, it's hard to follow that the, the the bar fight because it's so kind of all over the place. Um, you know, last complaint for a while. <laughs> um. But just speaking of the Mandalorian, I love how how he just doesn't feel the like he's completely comfortable with awkward silences, so he's never going to speak just to fill you know to fill in the fill in the gaps, and just the way he'll just sit there as other people just talk to and at him, and and it, it's so it's so it's so um imposing because it just shows this kind of confidence and it makes everyone else reveal how nervous they are because they just keep talking <laughs> to this blank wall. Yeah. It's, it's great. And the whole, the whole, the, vi- the, the visual, uh, I mean, the, the physical performance, whether it's from Pascal or, uh, uh, 
or Wayne, it's so good. Just like how much you can communicate just from a look or a tilt of the head or just total stillness. Um, it's, it's so good. Like the, you're never at a loss for what this guy is thinking, despite the fact that he's wearing a mask the entire time. Yeah, that's what I found just really impressive about it. Is because like there, there are times where I like I could swear that I'm 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 picturing an expression as I remember certain scenes. I'm like, no, you're, it's always just the helmet. Uh, just because like the the body language is just so strong, uh, like pulling out a gun, whether it's like that initial scene where he pulls it out and shoots the panel or. You know, whenever he walks in to meet the client and the stormtroopers are there, it, it feels like I think one of the reasons why I was excited at the end of the first episode is because I knew like, OK, the Mandalorian is going to be an iconic Star Wars character. Like people are going mm. to love this guy. I love this guy already. Um, yeah. And yeah. There's just something like the design itself, like Mandalorian armor has always been cool. And so, you know, getting to see what is only like the for the third time in like decades and decades, uh, finally getting to see a, a fully real, although, you know, like with it, you know, Boba and Django not being real Mandalorians, we finally get to see a full Mandalorian culture steeped Mandalorian. And, and it's just, it's they brought it to life in a way that, especially having just, you know, watched through clone wars and rebels and stuff like you feel the weight of, of what Mandalorian culture is. And why it feels important, mm-hmm. and so much of that is just in like the way he carries himself. Yeah. Um, I said no more complaints for a while, but I lied. How do you feel about Horatio Sands' character, James? <laughs> uh, I think he's fine. Like, I I don't have really a problem with his uh character. the The only thing that I like, if I had any issue with it, uh, it was you know going to like what is essentially just going to use the toilet. And, like, having him just constantly talk... I get he's, like, he's nervous and he's going to be talking and this and that. But, like, wa- actively walking around where it's, like, he's obviously obviously going to notice, like, you're 30 feet further sounding than you were before. It, it just, I guess the way that scene played out and then the Mandalorian's right behind him, it just it felt needlessly long. You know, like, we get our fun Life Day reference in there. Um but there was, like I don't know, there was just something awkward feeling about that scene. Like I like bits of it, and I think the guy's fine. I just there's something about the way that scene's written that it it feels I don't know off. I hated this. <laughs> like it, it, there, there's a thing. There's a whole lot of stunt casting in this show where where Favreau and a lot of comedians too, where Favreau will bring them in and just kind of let them riff, and. Uh, it just didn't work for me. It felt just very modern, real world. And like, like they brought in a comedian for a day and had him riffle on a bunch of lines. And I don't know, caught me a ground, but I didn't like it. <laughs> I was quite relieved when he got frozen. Um, then we got, then we go and meet uh, Grief Karg and get all this really cool bounty hunt, bounty hunter stuff. Uh, I, I like what the way they have it with the pucks and the tracking fobs. I'm not entirely sure how the tracking fobs work. They make no sense, but. I guess it is what it is. It, like it, it's really cool in that in the shot in the sand where they all light up in the bar. But like overall, it's like this makes it really easy and weird. Like whatever. But that, that's it. Like the the whole the way they have it work in the guild and all that is really cool. A lot great world building. Um, and Carl Weathers is fun. Yes, I I really really love him in this. 
just especially like whenever we get to uh the third episode i just i love how celebratory he is whenever he comes in and uh he really plays up a lot of scenes uh in fun ways but uh but yeah i i mm. like their first scene here too um and i i think that like like you said there is some cool world building done with this character just the way they refer to the guild without you know, there's not always like, oh, you should know this better than anyone that the guild, blah, blah, blah. Like, there, anytime that kind of dialogue happens, it actually feels fairly realistic. Um, but just being like, oh, there's plenty. It's just they don't want to pay guild rates. And, and then, okay, so now you know this. And then, you know, like, you slowly get to um, intake information about the culture without always being like, oh, this is what that means. You just, you get to... Um, feel more of of what this new side of Star Wars is like, and I, I think that you know, that great subtle world building continues when we meet up Werner Herzog, and like I love that you know the, the stormtroopers—they're all filthy and they have mismatched weapons. Like you kind of wonder, like, is this guy even a real imperial? Is he just like some local magistrate who worshipped the Empire, and or maybe a petty like a petty officer who just grabbed power? Like, yeah. I, I could totally believe that these guys are just people who put on stormtrooper armor. They're just local, you know, local heavies wearing stormtrooper armor. Like there's something so informal and just ridiculous about. And, but he's also so proud to be part of the empire. He's got the big imperial, uh, you know, icon on the wall. He's he's wearing it on it as a necklace. He's got the cape. Like uh, there's something just so kind of dorky about his facade and how proud he is of it. You really get the sense of like a power vacuum. Uh even without just like the explicit dialogue the visuals you know like the everything just looks so run down you know even like we've seen Tatooine and this still feels like oh man these guys really aren't doing good uh, <laughs> and that that initial like when the door opens and you see just what look like like almost just malnourished stormtroopers like these th- like these helmets that look like they're about to fall apart uh, yeah I, I like that and that's kind of like talking about uh, wanting a bit more time uh, I was glad that we were able to get a bit of these scenes of just like here's state of the galaxy because that like as somebody who loves the force awakens that's my biggest issue with that with that first one is just not enough time given to just live in the current state of things before we we find the momentum to you know like start pushing plot forward uh, but these these moments of just like here's here's the layout uh, I like stuff like that a lot, and I will never complain about a Werner Herzog uh, exposition monologue. Oh, exactly. Like he's... Because even then, I'm getting chills. <laughs> so good. And there's that that line. You speak of the state of the galaxy. The line is a kind of a monologue. He goes into talking about how you know the Empire provided order and stability, and tell me, you know, is is the galaxy more stable and peaceful now than before the Empire fell? Like, like some really interesting questions. I, I think that that's one of the cool things that I, I love about how new canon exploring post. Return of the Jedi about very realistic. Like, like when you have a revolution, they don't generally bring, bring a lot of peace. Like when you overthrow a stable government, you know, horrible government, but stable government, you get a power vacuum and there's, there's a lot of chaos and the, and the new Republic is simply too small. Um, and also afraid of being tyrannical to, you know, to control the galaxy. So you have you know, all these power vacuums and, and petty tyrants rising up and, you know, raiders and pirates. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, adding a lot of cool complexity to the world. Yeah, that's something that I feel like a lot of this, uh, 
Disney era stuff is able to do where I don't I don't necessarily feel like the kind of the black and white um, good versus evil um, themes of the original trilogy are ever like tarnished. I, I don't feel like I can't enjoy them as just this ultimate good versus bad stories. But you still are able to get like the Rogue Ones and the Mandalorians that are like, OK, so here's the ground ground floor. Look at some of this stuff. Um, here's here's the regular perspective uh we're not looking at this from Luke Skywalker's point of view and uh I, I that's always cool to me. Yeah. Uh, then we go back to, to the, the Mandalorian um hideout. And this was the the most interesting and kind of I don't know I, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about how the Mandalorians were handled here. because uh, it's interesting because like for most Star Wars fans they still know absolutely nothing about Mandalore coming into this episode and what the Mandalorians are. They, they know Boba Fett, cool armor, you know, warrior, warrior people. And, but like for those of us who have been, you know, in, in Clone Wars, in Rebels, like we know Mandalore like the back of our hand. So it was really jarring coming into this and the whole, the, the helmet thing, this is the way you know, they're hiding underground. Like when we, when we last saw Mandalore, uh, Sabine Ren had started a revolution and uh Bo-Katan you know, was leading a revolution against the Empire and we come and then we you know absolutely nothing about that happened since and then we come to, to this episode and apparently they're on the verge of extinction, you know, hiding in the gutters and just you know taking in foundlings to survive. Like it, it's kind of strange because like almost nothing about the you know the quote unquote Mandalorian culture that we see in this episode and in this show matches what, with what we know about Mandalorian culture from Clone Wars and Rebels. Was that jarring for you? Yes, and that, like that's something that I'm... I, I hate, like, continuity problems. And, you know, I, like, I we've seen Mandalorians all the time. And to now all of a sudden be told that they never show their faces, it's like, what? What I I can name you like I can use both hands to name you all the Mandalorian faces I've seen. Come on, like this, this is not at all what's been presented before, and that the that the repeat of like this is the way. I'm hoping that you know season two will be able to address some of this, even if it is just in lines of like, oh yeah, we're a we're a specific subset within Mandalorian culture. Like our I forget you know, like is is it houses um, that kind of divide. The- clans yeah so and i'm hoping that there's something that we just learned that there's something specific about whatever clan um jin uh that's how you pronounce it right did jin 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 darin or yeah uh that he that the the mandalorian uh that he's a part of like I, i'm hoping it's something specific to that because you know like we're, we're referencing uh ref, we're referring to things like the great purge and and the need for foundlings and all of this and and yeah like i this is not where i remembered the the state of mandalorians existing in last i saw and so i don't know i i'm hoping to get context that allows uh, both the the animated series and and this series to be able to coexist without ever feeling like they're they're trying to say two different things and and with just as as tight of a ship as like the story group runs when it comes to TV, uh, I I am surprised that that we were able to go this whole season 
with these questions still lingering. Especially considering that Dave Filoni was you know, so involved. You know, Mandalorian, Mandalorians are his guys. Yeah, for, for me, like my head can until we get further information was that, you know, Bo-Katan's rebellion just died a horrible death. The Empire took vengeance on the planet and obliterated it. And so what we have is like, a, you know, these little these frightened groups of, of Mandalorians kind of huddled together, kind of creating like even stricter uh, warrior cults, kind of uh, like really desperately trying to preserve their identity. So they're just creating like these more and more strict and and ridiculous identities uh, like the helmet rule and you know and also taking in foundlings well the thing is like the helmet rule is the helmet rule like what throws me is that this seems to be something that's existed for a long time you know like (laughs) you're messing up my head cannon uh like yeah that yeah the whole thing about you know i'll I'll stick with that with like the i like the why they're hiding you know i'll I'll use your headcanon there, and then to explain the helmet thing, that's where I'll rely on the, oh, it's just a clan thing. Yeah, like, the, I, I, the, the whole, I guess, like, for me, it's just, yeah, they were wiped out, they're, you know, they're huddling down, trying to survive, creating all these, you know, the very, this kind of, cult, like, uh, what do they call, what do they call it, a coven? I forget. Covens? Um, yeah, but isn't that witches? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, like, I, I don't think this is right. But, but, but don't they call it that at one point? Yeah, so the, the, I, feel like, I guess that's where we are now, and the the foundling aspect was interesting. Like, there's a, there's later in a later episode a line where like Mandalorians aren't a race; they're a creed. Like, no, they're a race. Like these, like we've seen it. <laughs> these like very Aryan, Teutonic looking guys. You know, like in the animation, you could always tell a Mandalorian just by looking at them because they all look the same. Um, eh, but who knows? It's weird. I mean, Star Wars has always been great about retcons, so I'm assuming they'll make they'll make it all make sense at some point. But it was it was really awkward for me, at least watching this. You know, knowing what I know. Well, they're usually great about retcons. Yeah, um, not all the time. But uh, like, I guess one thing, like with the idea of this um, this purge that we keep hearing about, um, they could just be embracing the idea of Mandalorian as a as a creed, just out of necessity, you know. Like, unless we allow for the adoption into a creed, we are going to be an extinct people. Which is a really cool idea. The whole taking in foundlings and baby Yoda's a foundling. Oh yeah, this baby Yoda. He's, he's going to come soon. Uh, uh, then we meet uh, the coolest and best character on the show. Uh, well, maybe. Well, he's not baby Yoda. Well, second, the second coolest and best show, the, uh, character in the show with uh, Kuwil, the Agnot. Um, he has spoken. And he's great. He's Nick Nolte. <laughs> I love this character. There, there's just something about like the old grizzled, uh, like the old grizzled man who's got a past, who's got probably like a violent past, and is just trying to live out the remainder of his years in peace. Like that kind of archetype has always just been so immediately like enjoyable to me. I always. Mm-hmm gravitate towards those kinds of like it just really really enjoyed like if if you have an actor like so much of it is just like giving him an iconic look and a good voice and like for he's an ugnot which is awesome and just that hearing nick nolte's gravelly voice coming out of this old ugnot farmer guy is just it's too good mm-hmm. uh just you know, you're a bounty hunter i will help you 
I have spoken. Like he, he's just so he's so confident and just pr- uh, in who he is, and he has this like really great internal pride. And but he's also like just a, a good dude who's gonna help anyone you know anyone who needs help. And uh, it's just it's like they do strain credulity a little bit just how far he's willing to go to help. But I still I, I still love it. Um, also blurgs. There are blurgs in here, uh, which was also really cool. You know, being watching all the animation they they're in uh, Clone Wars and um and Rebels. So, yay, they're back. Yeah, I I really like the translation to live action. You know, like it's, I, it's a really good design. Yeah, it's a there's something about the, just like given these massive piranha looking things, these like like it's it's cool. Like, looking at the animation, I I did I I don't think I would have anticipated it looking this like right i guess in live action because sometimes you see things like i really like the way it looks but it's because it's animated like i don't think that this kind of um art design could could translate into something that's supposed to be tangible but but i actually like there's those big old fish faces on there somehow just they look (laughs) really good yeah it's a great mix of uh practical and cgi and probably a lot of animatronics very well done and uh, i i love uh quill's you know reasoning reasoning for helping like it's both kind of partially, you know, the guest, you know, honoring the guest, but also, you know, they do not belong here. Those that live here come to seek peace. There will be no peace until they are gone. It's just like, <laughs> it's just like, you're doing me a favor. Get them out of here. And then we, we come to, to the Nikto pirates um, and IG-11. And IG-11 is amazing. Uh, I love that you know, Taika Waititi is doing such a toned down performance, but he, he could even make just like this very basic monotone thing hysterical. Uh, with just how kind of blunt and obtuse he is. Okay, like just the the New Zealand accent makes anything funny. Like it's just, <laughs> I feel like that's automatic points to any like, if you're like a comedian or or anything like that. If the accent is half the battle, <laughs> so like that's why the the repetition of like the self destruct. Because when you quote it, like you just you quote it like him, and it's just Stop immediately it. funny. Do not self destruct. <laughs> I love Mando's just increasing irritation about it. Um, but dude, the way he fights is so cool. Just the constant spinning around and you and perfect accuracy. There's that one shot that kind of spins around him as he's like going around just shooting everybody and mm. Like I, I had, I had a lot of issues with Filoni's direction up till now, but I think this entire you know final gun battle is pretty well well directed. Like he does a really good job staging. Like it's this classic Western gun battle. Like they could be like Adobe, you know, Adobe uh, buildings in a Mexican village somewhere, and you know, bandits on the roofs and in every doorway. Like it's it's something you see in every Western, but it's so well done and really fun. Yeah, and what's funny to me is I. You know, I hadn't read uh, any of the expanded universe, and so I, I never really understood. Often, like like Boba Fett, I didn't really understand why IG Eleven, uh, just had so much hype around him. Like at least with Boba, he's in it more and he looks cool. But I I never thought and the IG eighty eight is the is the one in, in uh, Empire Strikes Back. This is a different one. I so wait, hold. On. I thought this is IG eighty eight. Oh, this is IG eleven. Oh, like, this... there was a, there was a, a series of IG droids. Yeah, I, just, I I always get mixed up which one's eleven and which one's eighty eight. So this is eleven. Okay. Uh, well then, I never understood the hype. F- so I never understood the hype for IG eighty eight then. 
Um, and I think it's just because I never found the IG design. Like I looked at it, I was like, it just looks like a weird stick. Like I don't, I, how am I supposed to be convinced that this thing is like actually capable? And then this scene, I'm like, I, I'm not convinced at all that this was like the way the original de- like production designers saw it. But I am now convinced, you know, like this thing is freaking awesome. And I mean, originally it was it was just welded together out of scrap metal for a prop. <laughs> exactly. It, it, but but now looking at it, like I now look at IG eighty eight. I'm like, oh, I know, like that that those are it's all because it swivels and this and that. And all of a sudden, like the design itself becomes cool because I see the mechanics of it. Yeah. And then we get Baby Yoda, the most adorable thing that's ever been created. Um. And oh my gosh, it's quite disturbing to see a blaster point in his face. <laughs> like, like, the thing is, like, Dave Filoni is a great storyteller. So, despite some of my issues with his live action filmmaking, like, there are moments where he just knows how to tell a story, like that close up on, like, the close kind of zoom into Mando's face, and then you just see the red flash. Yeah. And uh, the IG, the IG Eleven falls over. Like, really, really great, just simple storytelling. It's just. That final shot of him reaching his finger out to the baby, like that sing- that one scene tells us as much about his character as we've learned, like in the entire episode. Um, like yeah, like I do have frustrations with how with just how simplistic the show is, but it's still like it, it, the way it can just tap into these great archetypes through just simple, effective storytelling is still pretty impressive. Yeah, and you know what a what a great cliffhanger, you know, to that that species carries so much mystery still and so you introduce a new one and now the the season kind of has a direction and like and a hook and so that that was a huge reason of just like why i was so on board by the end of it yeah like i watching the episode like i don't know like it's good but it's, it's not entirely working like and then you get to the final gun battle and that final like yep i'm on board <laughs> give me the next episode right now um and then finally, like, the end credits with the, with the concept art and the Mandalorian theme was just a brilliant choice. I always love when they can put concept art in uh, the end credits. Like it's, I will never get tired yeah. of that. And this is some of the best. Yeah. So uh, I do want to talk very briefly about the score for this episode. Um, Ludwig Gordonson does very, um, very kind of you know odd, offbeat, quirky music, and that's you know that's no different here. Um, it's you know very simple and mi- minimalistic overall. Uh, it's always going for this kind of odd instrumentation. Um, the uh, the the big one of the big instruments is the uh the bass recorder, which is the, that kind of wooden fluty sound. It sounds like very uh, Morricone. Yeah. Um, like that's that's like when you hear this opening beats of the Bando's uh the opening notes of the Mando's theme, it's the uh, bass recorder. Like I think because his music is so kind of unique, like the actual the incidental music. D- sounds better in the uh, in the show than like listening by itself it's just a bit too erratic sometimes to you know make good listening however there are a couple tracks that i do want to mention um first one is hey man hey mando this is where we get kind of that the that the introduction to the really awesome simple mando theme it's, it's really evocative then there's hammer time which is the the flashback theme of uh, this like steady implacable ford march um it's like there's there's like desperation discordance underneath this very very interesting piece of music then there's the mandalorian which is the track that plays over the credits of every episode and this is like just kind of a sort of a, a suite for the mandalorian theme going through all its var- variations and 
I have listened to this track so many times. This is my favorite track of 2019. Like, I, I would just put this on all the time in the car, you know, taking a shower, put it on the on the speaker, just anywhere. It's one of because like there are so many different like themes within the whole thing and every single one is like equally as awesome as the previous it's it's mm-hmm. so it's already like and i've, I've got a, a playlist of just star like my favorite star wars tracks and immediately like this is standing like all, with the shoulders of like all of the other ones episode two the child uh this one is written by john favreau uh like we said he's written the entirety of season one uh, and is directed by rick famuyiwa uh, while returning to his ship with the child, the Mandalorian fights and kills a group of rival bounty hunters who ambush him. Nearing his ship, he finds it's being shipped by Jawas for parts and violently confronts them. When he tries to attack their sandcrawler, the Jawas stun him and drop him from its roof. The following day, Kuil helps him locate the Jawas and negotiate for the return of his ship's components. The Mandalorian agrees to retrieve the egg for a rhinoceros-like mudhorn in exchange for the stolen parts. He enters the mudhorn's cave, only to be hurled out uh, by the beast inside, uh, damaging his armor. As the mudhorn rushes in for the kill, the child uses the force to levitate the beast, allowing the Mandalorian to stab and kill him in the moment. Uh, He collects the egg and takes it to the Jawas. With the trade complete, the Mandalorian and Kuil work together to repair the ship, allowing the Mandalorian to leave the planet with the child. Yeah, so this one is actually shot is shot by a guy named Baz Iodine. He's a fairly new uh, director of photography. Uh, he was the second unit DP on Rogue One, um, and I don't know if it's if it's him or just I like the director. I like the direction better, but I think I like I like his episodes better than Greg Frazier's episodes. Um, as far as like visuals, um, that could be entirely down to direction and not you know not not necessarily talent of the, the DP. Yeah, like just right from that first shot, I think you can tell that. Uh, Rick Famuyiwa understands the form of live action much better than Filoni. Uh, it just it just feels right. And, like, the whole the whole episode just looks better. I think the shots are cleaner. It, like there there's just more contrast in. They're not as kind of muddy and indistinct. The compositions just look nicer. Um, it just looks more like a western. Like there's more thought put behind the camera. Also, his action is so much better. Yes. Um. Like he uses the one eighty line really well to keep the the geography clear. Like it's quick. There's quick cuts, but never to the point where clarity is lost. Um, I just think like, like just he he's able to just like allow shots to last you know a second longer to you know to let a scene play out. He uh, like he uses the music within the within the uh within the editing just to it just feels smoother. Like he he just he knows what he's doing in this form, and it, it's just so much nicer. Yeah, that initial chase of the sand crawler is just like I, I it wasn't long at all after the episode release that you had the indiana jones and the last crusade mashup video because like that's mm-hmm. anybody who's seen that movie was thinking that during that sequence and it, it wasn't like this ripoff because like the the scene itself was just really well shot like that was it's probably still one of my favorite action sequences in in this first season um yeah like there's just the sense of speed and momentum and like the way you know before it begins the chase just like watching the bodies disintegrate stuff which is like i never thought that i'd get so much like twisted joy from just watching jaws vaporized that that really threw me at first like oh my like oh he's gonna he's gonna shoot a warning shot oh my gosh he just just zapped the guy and like there's there's a sense of like 
heaviness uh not like thematic heaviness, but just like actual like weight to the combat here like falling from the sand crawler feels like you fell a distance and you know as he's trying to climb up and they're just throwing all of these different you know parts and debris and stuff at him and he's kicking him and he's pulling him and throwing him over the side like the action here has like genuine teeth to it and and the treads are scary hanging yeah. under him and so like th- all of everything here and you know when we get to the mud horn you know he's thrown around a lot and you you know you just hearing the clanging of the horn with the armor and then seeing the the bent up uh chest plate barely hanging on it, it just it feels gruff and there's a why does mud make action better i don't know but it does like i mean I, this scene the scene from solo just the the muddy world war ii looking bits of of a uh, rogue one uh, but there, there's a scene when he's fighting the Mudhorn, you know, and he 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 shoots the the cable at him. He's just being dragged. I'm like, this really is just space Indiana Jones right now. And I I really love it, like, because those movies uh-huh. had that kind of like he'll just get punched twenty times and look absolutely exhausted by the end of every action scene. And you know, like you are like throwing people into propellers. Like there, there's real teeth and grit to those those action scenes. Um, and I, I love that 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 feeling of of brutality was able to you know to find its way here in the show and uh, that i think that is one of the show's like secret weapons is they're not afraid to just beat the hell out of this guy and i feel like a less secure show would have done the thing where he, he's awesome and he's cool and he's just better than everyone else and he's always going to come out on top and he's always going to win and i actually heard a lot of complaints initially i got I, I, they might have gone away as the show went on but like and it's like, oh my gosh, this guy is such a dork. Why well, he can't even fight some Jawas? Like, but I think I love like he is better than most people, and you know he's really, really good at his job. But he's not invincible. He's just one dude, and he can't fight an entire army of Jawas on their, you know, on their own turf. Or, you know, one guy against the rhinoceros, the rhino- you know, the guy's gonna lose. Like, but it, but even then, like he keeps trying, he keeps getting up. And he's just a little bit faster, a little bit more clever, but that's not always enough. And so every single victory comes at enormous cost, and it feels really earned and satisfying in a way that if he was just awesome, which like I like watching awesome people do awesome things, but you you I think you know Tom Cruise is the guy who's got this down to a science. Like you gotta get hurt a little bit, you gotta get hurt, <laughs> it's gotta cost you, and then that makes it all worth it at the end. Yeah. Because, like, like we said, that those are the when you think about just the pantheon of great action classics, you have your Indiana Jones, you have your Die Hard, you know, where you're just like you're taking his shoes off of him and having him run through glass, and it hurts, and you uh-huh. like he's covered in blood by the end of the movie. That's that's what that's where so much of the exhilaration from action, at least for me, comes from. It's like, oh man, this is this is a fight. This isn't just a stage thing, like that is that it exists solely to facilitate him doing this cool thing it's like no this is everything it's like some sense of struggle yeah they're not afraid to like bring him right up to the edge of humiliation like having that gigantic uh sand crawler action sequence to get to the top and just be sat by a dozen chawas and fall down like after all that effort all that work and it doesn't mean anything uh oh baby yoda just (laughs) zooming along behind them (laughs) in his little you know child carrier the, the Baby Yoda reaction shots. Like, this is why cinema was invented. <laughs> just randomly cutting to him, just chilling and just watching and mildly reacting to whatever's happening. It's beautiful. 
but the crazy thing is like, if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe there's a single word spoken until he gets back to Quill and, you know, I thought you were dead. Like, do you remember any dialogue or lines before that? Um, oh, uh, I don't know, actually. I think this might be entirely silent up until he gets back to Quill, which is like 10, 15 minutes in. Yeah. And then, you know, as after that's done, then we have another extended period of time. I, I don't know, because we, we set him back off to fight the Mudhorn. There's probably a lot in this episode that isn't. That like is just completely devoid of dialogue. That's that's crazy. Like you don't you don't. I didn't notice that until my like my third or fourth viewing. But like that's just a sign of really effective visual storytelling. Like we don't that we don't even miss it. I love that. I love that Kuil is like very integrated into the plan. Like he understands the culture. You know, he knows how to work with Jawas. You know, Jawas steal. They do not destroy. You know, so he <laughs> just like him kind of just trying to mediate between them with Mandalorian constantly losing his patience. <laughs> <laughs> bringing out a flamethrower to negotiations no, so the humor in this episode is like freaking phenomenal if there are bits in the first episode that didn't work everything here is amazing like you know these the jaw i'm trying to remember what the java says like your java sounds like you're trying to speak wookie and it's like you understand this and he just he <laughs> turns it on like that bit is amazing and hilarious and Every, everything with the, the suka, the the egg, is like it should be so dumb, suka, but it's so suka. funny. And one of one of my favorite parts of that that whole bit is just when like whenever they're they're at all riding in a sand crawler, and he's like hunched over, and one of the little jellies just looks over at him and just like suka, like just the one, just uh, it's so good, it's so. Which is where they all chuckle when he hits his head on the ceiling. <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. I'm a Mandalorian. Oh. Weapons are part of my religion. Um. Another great line, <laughs> one for the ages. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 sand crawler itself is just a really beautifully realized design. Um, I don't know like how much of that was practical, how much of it was CGI or miniatures, but whatever it was, it looks good. Like if yeah. you feel the weight of it. Um, also the effects of the mudhorn are great. Like I mean, yes, I guess you see photorealistic CGI animals are pretty much all John Favreau does now, so it shouldn't be surprising. But still on a TV budget. Wow, yeah, I was, I was hoping against hope that it'd be the the creature from Attack of the Clones, uh-huh. uh, but the Mudhorn's design is is pretty amazing. Yeah, I love like that kind of mammoth wool that it has. Oh, the muddy fur is so gross and icky. I just want to take a shower after watching that scene. Ugh. Yeah, that, that that whole scene is just really painful, and uh, Baby Yoda uses the Force. That was like like they know how to get these hooks into these episodes. Like, you know, it's like seeing Baby Yoda at the end of the first episode. Now, Baby Yoda using the Force. Like, oh my gosh, the, the way they're just able to like so, so just so perfectly open up the world and make you ask all these questions that you have to have answered is great. And to that, you know, and also they say take that to all the people that, that say you know you need years of training to use the Force. Whatever. <laughs> that has never been how it's been. Never. Um. And just Kuwil continuing to be the best dude. He's like, you know, this is going to take days to fix. If you care to help, it will, ju- it will go much faster. <laughs> oh, I love him. And you get the picture. You get the idea that he's just a craftsman who takes, you know, who joins his work and takes immense pride in it. Um, you know, he knows he's good at it and he's going to do it. Um, and like, and also like the fact that despite, you know, he's constantly going out of his way to help and, and you know, and you know, place himself at the service of the Mandalorian. They never compromise like his pride and dignity. You know, he's a free young nut, and he's going to help who he pleases. Uh, 
You know, like, I am honored, but I have worked a lifetime to finally be free of servitude. It's like that whole, that one line is so, it just says so much about who this character is. Yeah. Dobby is a free elf. <laughs> I was so, I was initially so glad that we get to come back to him, but I almost wish we never saw him again. <sighs> yes, it's sad. Um, yeah, this this is just a perfect little episode. Like nothing happens like plot wise. Like it's it's all just you know spinning its wheels in the mud. And yet I love every second of it. Yep. Uh, so f- as far as the score for this episode, uh, there's Jawas attack. Uh, I love like the Jawas are represented through these like really shrill either like a flute like a really shrill flute, which is just like kind of the perfect uh, music for this kind of childlike you know tiny little childlike Jawas. Um, and then the way that's you know, this really cool action music where you got a bunch of like flutes and recorders and percussion. Um, it's like that whole, the whole piece of music is like really exciting and propulsive. It's something, it's almost something I could imagine like hearing in like Pirates of the Caribbean. It's just so fun and bombastic. Um, but always with just the flutes underneath for the Jawas. Um, then there's the Mudhorn, which is like this Winter Soldier-esque kind of thing where it's this you know garish blaring electronic sounds and driving percussion um and i think the percussion might also be electronic but it's just very kind of wrong like it gives me similar kind of irksome vibes to the uh to the winter soldier music um and then i love how that that piece of music it goes back into the flashback theme as he kind of accepts his death um then there's the celebration, which is this very fa- fast, fun, upbeat uh, Mando theme. Just great episode, great music. Do you have anything to say about the music? Uh, just that it's really good. I I didn't end up, even though I had time, I completely forgot to to listen to the score again beforehand. But I do remember, like in the moment, um, I, I remember like especially the the sand crawler sequence. I just I remember there being like a a genuine feeling of excitement within the score. Uh, so next episode is uh, chapter three, The Sin. This one is directed by Deborah Chow, and it was shot by Greg Frazier. The Mando returns with the child to Navarro. Uh, despite make misgivings, he hands it over to the client and accepts the reward of a whole bunch of Bestar. He returns to the Mandalorian hideout, and it is turned into some seriously swanky new armor. He gets a new bounty from uh, Grief Karga, but his pesky conscience won't let him leave. He goes back to the Imperial compound and kills everyone. And also saves Baby Yoda, but mostly just kills people. Uh, then the client sends out a bounty to everyone on the planet. There's a huge battle as the Mando tries to return to his ship. Again, the Mando kills everyone. But he's about to be overrun when all of his Mando buddies show up and wreck shop to cover his escape. Or his escape and the child's escape. Uh, and then after a brief standoff with grief, they fly off to look for safety in parts unknown. And th- th- this one uh, goes back to more of the muddy nondescript cinematography that we saw in the first episode like it's better it's like the direction is better than Filoni's like it's all it's very effective live action uh filmmaking like it gets you know the emotions come across the action is exciting but it's it's still very bland handheld tv cinematography unfortunately which is one of the reasons why I'm not as excited to see Deborah Chow take over uh you know the entire uh Obi-Wan show I was kind of like hoping I kind of wish it was like would have gone to Famuyiwa I mean like it's that's not really a knock against i think her you know her, her direction is is very good but it's also just very bland at the same time yeah there, there's not a, a real there's nothing really to gravitate towards to me and and if i'm talking about her direction you know like there's nothing particularly that that sticks out 
Whereas with the previous one, I'm like, oh yeah, he there is a like there's a sense of geography and, and movement in the action that I think is really cool, and the way he the the wider lenses you see things. I, I don't know. It, it feels a lot more intentional in in what we're showed, and uh, this feels. I, it kind of goes back to that more close quarters style of of camera work, where we're just like we're always pretty pretty close to everything going on. We're just kind of like turning the camera here and there, and like you said, it's not bad. It's just I don't know. There's a level of in, intentionality. I don't even know if that that's the right word here, but there, it just it feels like there was something different about. Um, Famiyua's episode. Yeah, uh, this, this is the this is where we, where a baby Yoda really starts to come, you know, come into his own. <laughs> like the shot of him climbing out of the car seat in the background as the Mando's flying the ship. Uh, just the, the little hand reaching up <laughs> over the to grab at the ball. Like he's just so freaking adorable. Um, it's not a toy. <laughs> he just picks him up by the scruff of the neck and sets him in the uh, the car seat. Like I. I love that you know, he's not kind to Baby Yoda, but he's also he's also very gentle. Like just the way he interacts is really really yeah. adorable. Um, Their relationship is like the heart of this season. Oh, dude! Just the building apprehension and like increasingly you know questioning squeaks from Baby Yoda as they go into the Imperial compound. Like he just keeps looking back at Daddy to make sure it's all okay, but it's not okay. And. Th- Looking back at him as he's being taken out of the room, just like rips your heart out. Uh, like if Mando had you know, actually left, like I don't know, could the show have recovered? I don't. Probably not. Well, probably is just. It, I don't think it would have become what it is now. And uh, hers all like gets creepier and creepier with every single second of screen time. Like the way he kind of gets all insulted when uh, Mando asks about the child, and he's talking about you know. Unfortunately, finding a Mandalorian in these trying times is more difficult than finding the steel. It's like, damn, that's a burn. And just, you know, that answering that way just motivates him all the more. Because like, man, this, it feels like you're really, you're relying on the culture of the Mandalorian and the, like, and the guild to, to not have to answer, you know, like it, it feels like there is something being intentionally hidden. Yeah. Um, and you know, then he goes back to the uh, to the hideout, and I don't know, did you, I don't know if you felt this, but when I first watched this episode, it's called the sin. I thought the sin would be a Mandalorian selling a foundling instead of bringing it back to be raised as a Mandalorian. And I, I was kind of thinking that maybe that his clan was going to banish him, you know, for this crime against you know for breaking the code, and then his redemption arc throughout the series would be, you know, going, he would have to go, you know, to redeem himself, to get back to his people. He would have to go rescue the child and, you know, to reclaim his honor and status. Uh, didn't turn out that way, but I was kind of hoping it would. Yeah. I, I don't even know if I ever paid enough attention to like the, the titles of the episodes to, to have thought of that. It was mainly like when he was walking through the halls and like all the, the Mandalorians kind of ominously gathering around him, like, Oh no, like, you, you messed up. You're in trouble now. Uh, but it doesn't happen. Um, he goes and gets some awesome armor. And also uh, John Favreau uh, voices Paz Vizsla. Um, but he's just John Favreau. <laughs> like, Wait, like, so there is a Vizsla here. Yeah. Well, it's it's not pre-Vizsla, but it's Paz Vizsla. You know. But, well, that shuts down any idea that there's something different about this clan. Well, unless he joined in. Oh, know, that's they, right. they were wiped out. So, But yeah, like, it's funny because uh, John Favreau voiced pre-Vizsla in the Clone Wars series. So he's voicing another Vizsla, but he's not changing his voice at all. 
Um, like he's not credited, but if you've seen the Clone Wars, you know it's him. But also, like, uh, also under the armor, the big guy. At first, I thought it was maybe Favreau because he's so much bigger <laughs> than all the other Mandalorians. But it's actually it's again Tate Fletcher, you know, the big bearded thug in the bar from the first episode. And I think this is a bit of exposition that doesn't work so well. Where like when Favreau's, you know, railing on the on the Mandalorian, he's like giving all this exposition about you know. This happened to our people. Then this happened. Then this happened. And also, you're a bad guy. But also, let me tell you about this. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the, one of the bits where it doesn't work as well. Um, and just the way the way the uh, the arm the uh, armor just kind of sits there watching as the children squabble. She lets them <laughs> take care of their own problems. It's so cool. Oh, the line that breaks my heart. You know, it wasn't a noble kill. I was helped by an enemy. Why would an enemy help you in battle? It did not know that I was his enemy. Hmm. <sighs> No, I'm sad again. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, forging armor is never not awesome, and I think it reaches like a whole new level of awesomeness here. I think the f- I didn't really care for how uh, Filoni did the flashbacks; it felt kind of rushed and awkward. But I think the flashbacks are so much better integrated uh, by Chow in this episode. I think it just it, it like builds. The music is building. We're zooming in his face, and then um, the way the the they flashback every time the hammer falls. It's um. And also the, the 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 flashback music is gorgeous. Um, we see the, the the super battle droids attacking his village as a child. Um, it's just really really impactful sequence. Uh, I, I do like the way they they slowly tease out his um his origin story through these flashbacks with the armor. It, it's, it's it's a very video game type thing where you know, he go, he goes out he gets yep. you know, he gets the loot comes back makes the armor we get the we get the cutscene. Uh yeah. And then strolling into the into the bounty hunter's bar with his new armor, like, yep, that's all. That's awesome. Carl Weathers is weird in this scene. I can't tell if he's really good or kind of bad. Uh, like the dialogue isn't great; it's very expositional. But the performance is so over the top. Like, I don't know, is he playing that that he's like scared and really desperate to fool the Mando into taking another job? Like, it's so weird and big and boisterous. Like, uh, Mando, my good friend, everyone here, they hate you. Like, I don't know. Did it strike you as weird at all? I, I actually really love the scene. Uh, <laughs> and if there is bad dialogue, I guess I didn't notice it just because I was really enjoying Carl Weathers. Um, to me, I felt more like the in the the first episode, you know, like we just got these bail jumpers that the most, like the one that pays the most is not even like, like they like they said, that's not even enough to pay for fuel and this and that. So I, I just I felt this sense that their business isn't great and that he and that maybe like these I don't know, people weren't going for the right things or there's just some something going on where he he and a lot of the um, the bounty hunters are just not in a great place and just using the success I, I felt that it was him using the success of the Mandalorian to try to like not motivate because I think he's very like, cause that implies that I, I, I think he cares about them. I, I think he's very, you know, like selfish <laughs> in terms of what he's after, but I don't know. It felt like he was using him to ag on other people to do more. Maybe like, like, Oh, this is the guy that gets the job done. That, um, so I don't know. There's just something like, I, I re- really was, was into the, the kind of like loud showmanship kind of performance that he had. Yeah. Uh, but then he go uh, another piece of just beautiful visual story. Uh, the three beat of the little ball on the stick 
in the you know, in the control ship and the control stick on the ship is just beautiful. Where he goes back, he's you know going through the landing sequence. He reaches for it and it's gone. And like ever, like we and we and in that instant, we all know exactly what's going to happen, and it happens. And he goes and he kills everybody. We get a bit of exposition uh, where uh, you know, the Herzog like oh, extract the necessary material and be done with it. Uh, but he's arguing with the with the doctor guy who's like, you know, we were explicitly ordered to bring it back to alive. Like I, I, I'm a little frustrated. We got to the end of the series and we still have absolutely no concept of what they wanted from Baby Yoda. Apparently, they yeah. wanted something that's inside him, but uh, it's it's very unclear and kind of weird. I was really rooting for like midi chlorian extraction, just as a big middle <laughs> finger to prequel haters, but. That's that because I I assumed that that was going to be part of what what wrapped up season one was the discovery of this, because um, like people pointed out <laughs> that would be hilarious. You, oh, sorry, so th- that would be hilarious because it's you know, all the old the original trilogy fans are like yes this this is the Star Wars we always wanted the one we deserve, um, <laughs> but like it it was surprising and and a you know a smidge a, sh- a smidge frustrating that we don't revisit like this part of the plot because like people pointed out that that um the doctor ha- like had the same emblem as the Kaminoans in Attack of the Clones and I'm like oh what's going on like is it are they trying to clone the species and stuff maybe this is something that they plan on revisiting in season 2 but it was weird to just feel like we we pretty much dropped it completely yeah and also the, the like what's with the doctor being a good guy trying to save the baby's life and yeah who knows Maybe, I guess it'll come back in season two, maybe. Yeah, because, you know, we really didn't, like, with with the ending of this season, which is incredible, uh, but knowing that season two is going to be Giancarlo Esposito, like, pursuing them, their motivation for what they want with Baby Yoda is going to have to come up. So I'm assuming we'll get back to this. Yeah, uh, uh, this infiltration is probably the most disappointing aspect of the direction for me, like, you have the one of those classic Batman stalking sequences where you go around and just beat up, beat you know, slash kill everyone in the building, and you know, you have a great opportunity for some really cool creative action and a lot of suspense. And honestly, it's kind of really flat. Like, just the direction is so basic. He just kind of walks around, and like half the time, only succeeds because of you know dumb luck and because the stormtroopers are are stupid. Like. Like half the time he gets surprised, they'll get a shot off, and then he rolls around and shoots them. Like it's just very bland action. Um, although roasting a stormtrooper alive was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the him sneaking around and hiding whenever those two stormtroopers came in. Like there, there's something about like a lot of the time whenever a stealth isn't like super well portrayed in a movie, I feel like it's like it's the direction just feels super deceptive and and very good direction often is deceptive like you don't think like where i to show you this you'd realize that oh this this kind of doesn't make sense but you know a lot of time, good direction is just hiding those things and just showing the things that in a way that makes sense and that's okay you don't have to go frame by frame through action sequences to point out mistakes do you sorry <laughs> exactly oh, don't get me started on that video but uh but like it felt like the stealth here was just like he was able to sneak around simply because the camera was pointed at, at a tilted angle. And if he wasn't in frame, then they couldn't see him. And it's just like, like this is a guy in huge, in a huge steel armor set. And he's just like, like he was, you just saw where he, where he pulled that one guy down and that he, he's just vanished again. I don't know. It didn't feel 
he's it's not as if the Mandalorian is this giant brute like he there is some agility to him but I don't know trying to like go full Batman in the scene where it's just you the guy trips and all of a sudden he's there no more and like it, it I don't know I don't feel as if all of that was hidden well enough like I could tell like oh now that I mean I the eye line they they should see him he's his head is probably sticking like six inches above the box he's behind and uh, then the movie turns into basically a uh, 310 to Tatooine. And it's like totally, three, it's totally 310 to Yuma. You know, he's got the package, he's got to get here, and there are a hundred goons in the way, and he's just going to shoot a bunch of them in the face. And, you know, a- as much as the previous action sequences pointed me, I think this one is really well staged. You know, it's not nothing, it's not like beautiful direction or anything, but it's very effective. Um, just the, the sense of being overwhelmed and the, you know, the desperation of it all. And like, it, it's really hard to maintain excitement when they're like so much of the, the excitement and intensity of an action sequence is based in motion, you know, moving the camera characters moving and there's no movement in this action sequence. He's just laying down in the bottom of a trailer being shot at. And yet it's Deborah Chow is able to keep up the intensity and the, you know, the, the threat of it all really well, which is uh, pretty impressive. If you actually think about it, the fact that she can't actually use like, the best tool of action, which is motion. Yeah, and like the the scene itself feels pretty dynamic. Like there's there's a lot of different pieces. You you have the the stationary aspect on his part. You've got like there's the the vertical element of like the people on the roof, the people down, the people sneaking behind. And I think what I liked the most about it was just that the fact that there was kind of a, a sense of geography to the scene that made mm-hmm. sense. Um, and it wasn't like well. He's hiding here, which gives him invincibility. Like they're they're sneaking around here. He's got to watch the horizon. Like there were there were different things. I guess it's just, it's surprising to me that it's not boring. You know, yeah, because they're they've got these different moving pieces they're working with, or not moving pieces in his case. And I think this might actually be my favorite grief cargo scene. Where like it says so much about his character. You know that you know he's standing up for the guild and his reputation. He, he's not gonna let this go. And like he's not evil or you know or maniacal about it. He's just a businessman who has to protect his business. Um, and just the way he kind of tries to talk. Like I don't know if he actually would have ever let the Mandalorian go. He probably would have killed him anyway. But just the way he tries to reason with him is really really well done. Yeah, yeah. Then the Mandalorians come, and I imagine this scene was like absolutely mind blowing for people who hadn't seen Clone Wars and Rebels. Like, like me, I've seen you know. I've seen Mandalorians, you know, wreck shop a dozen times. And it was even, even for me, this was pretty cool. And this was a pretty low key action sequence by those standards. But people who've never seen Mandalorians in action before, this had to have been mind blowing. See, I almost wonder, because I, I remember flipping, being so excited. I almost wonder if it, if having me having watched all of Clone Wars so much is what made it even more mind blowing for me. It's like, I, finally in live action getting to see mandalorians the way i know them like i i have seen you know i i forget the name of the episode but i'm thinking about um you know whenever the the they're on i don't they're not on mandalorian they're on that snowy planet and you've got the big chase scene with ahsoka and stuff like that's whenever i hear mandalorians that's what i think these this huge group of uh of people it's a friend in need okay that's yes that's the one um like this group just flying in unison and like the the shot of them in that episode landing on the rooftop surrounding them like that's mandalorians and getting to see that translated in a really cool way into live action was just so fun like mm. 
that made any any like you know the the lack of like inspired direction in that infiltration infiltration scene was kind of made up for just because of how cool it was to see all of them come to come to his aid. Yep. Jetpacks. I love it. And like and going back to my kind of uh uh fan uh my, my kind of fan theory about how I was thinking that this episode will be about him trying to regain his honor. I kind of want to rewrite the episode in that way. Like imagine if you know that that you know, that final. This is the way. This is the way between him and the and uh, Paz Vizla. Like, how powerful would that have been if you know he had been banished? Like, he had been banished, and like he has to go back, and he goes back. You know, he, he rescues the child, and now he's about to die. You know, trying to regain his honor, and then in that final moment, you know, his clan rises up around the prodigal son. And you know, accepts him back in, you know, because he did his best trying to, you know, trying to reclaim his honor for himself and for the clan. And now, after rejecting him early, they come around to him and save him at that moment. Like, I was like, it, it, it gives me chills as is. Like, I'd probably be weeping if that was the case in the episode. I'm, I may be missing something. What, what is the sin being like in reference? What is? I guess the sin is just he left the child behind and he has to go save him. Or maybe oh. it's the sin against it's the sin against the bounty hunters code. Oh, maybe in, you know, take in reclaim your bounty. It's not as clear. Which is like, I, I get like I I feel like this 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 show never really tries to go for the deep emotional dramatic stuff. It really it kind of keeps it on the surface. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, the, the, have you have you seen the Rocketeer? I have not, but I've seen like enough images from it where that was the first image that came to mind when he's like looking at him out the window. Yeah, when John Favreau flies up <laughs> beside the uh, the uh, the ship and salutes him, like it's a, a, like there's something very old timey about the way his cape is flapping, um, and the salute, like the framing and salute is exactly like a, a scene from the Rocketeer, or possibly an Iron Man reference, but I, th- I think it's the uh, the Rocketeer. And then the the final uh, you know re- reference to the three beat, where you just see babe, just Baby Yoda's hand reach up over the dash, and he just drops the ball into his hand. And all is perfect and right with the world. Like that is that that's the moment where I think I almost got most on board. I'm like, I I really like this like father child dynamic going on that I I wasn't expecting, and I'm I'm on board for whatever adventures they're about to get on. Yeah. All right. And so for the score, uh, this this score is like more appropriately much more dark and moody. Um, there's a signet forging, which is the Again, going back to that really implacable flashback theme, it's just epic and tragic, just kind of bowls you over and envelops you. It's really, really powerful. And there's uh, Mando Rescue, this huge emotional Mando, Mando theme uh, with you know much more orchestral, like a lot of variety of instruments than before. Um, and the final one is I Need One of Those. Uh, it's it's like freeing. Like it, it, The music feels like a weight has been lifted off of you. It's just this big, joyous uh, Mandalorian theme music. Uh, Really fun. So for episode four, which is the final one we're covering in this episode, uh, this one was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, arriving on the sparsely populated forest planet Sorgan, the Mandalorian encounters ex-Rebel shock trooper turned mercenary Cara Dune. Following a short brawl, Dune explains that she is hiding after taking early retirement and asks the Mandalorian to leave. While he prepares his ship, two desperate fishermen approach, offering to hire him to drive off a, b- a band of Clatoonian raiders. He accepts a job in exchange for lodging, using their credits to enlist Dune's help. 
At the village, they are housed by Omera, a widowed mother. The Mandalorian confides in her that no one has seen him without his helmet since childhood, when his tribe took him as an orphan. Despite discovering that the raiders have an old Imperial ATST, the villagers refuse to leave, so the Mandalorian and Dune train to defend themselves. They, pr they provoke the raiders at night, with Dune luring the ATST into a trap for the Mandalorian to blow up and forcing the remaining raiders to flee. With peace, uh, with peace restored, the Mandalorian plans to leave the child in the village, but a guild bounty hunter tracks it down and is killed by Dune. Realizing that neither the village nor the child would be safe, the Mandalorian departs with the child still. Yeah, so th uh, this one is, again, uh, shot by Baz Iodide. And again, I like this one a lot more visually than the other one. So um, it's interesting that like, th this, this, um, in this episode, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard doesn't like at all use kind of the house style that all the other episodes use, like that kind of the, the, the more loose handheld Favreau style. Like she does this very, very clean, composed wide shots, very little handheld. It's almost always either locked off or just like this subtle pan or dolly motion. I mean, it's like very uh, sedate, peaceful looking direction, which, which is very fitting for an episode called sanctuary. Um, also color. Like there's, there's, there's green and it's nice and it's pretty and blues. And <laughs> it's like, it's really refreshing just to see some color again. Um, I, I, I remembered, uh, <laughs> I thought about the court, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that there was this much green in the entire galaxy when you get here. Um, it reminded me of like, when I live in Arizona, but whenever I go back home to Virginia, it's like, it, I, I just get shocked by the fact just how much green there is. So it's always lovely. Um, yeah, there's just. I got the same feeling like there's just something calming about the way it's shot and, and the location itself. Like the blue shrimp things are just so like visually interesting and cool. Like that's just, that's such a great thing to have in any composition, like to be able to bring that much concentrated color and, and have it make sense is, is really cool. It's just like really nice wide compositions in front. Like it, everything feels like we're we're not constantly moving around, moving the camera. It, it loses that very like everything's up close. Everything like you're seeing everything that we're pointing this like this camera is not getting. It's not taking in nearly as much of the environment. Whereas here, it it really does feel like you're each shot is getting a lot of information in frame. And part of that, I think this I think this episode is where they did the the location shooting on like. There are there are there are shots where like you can kind of tell it's the it's the projection, but there are other shots where it does feel like they're actually in a field in the woods. Like it, the environment feels a bit more well realized. Like it, I don't I don't know that you could do that much inside. You know that the kind of projection studio they were using. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this one is the Magnificent Seven slash Seven Samurai episode. Which Star Wars already did way back in the Clone Wars. In uh, I was about to say this has already been done, and Honda was there, so you can never do better. Yeah, the Clone Wars episode, Bounty Hunters. Um, and I enjoy this episode. I think that there's a, there's a problem here. The core problem is that it it's number one. It's the very it's uh, the most cliche tr Western trope is the you know, the Magnificent Seven type trope where. You know the lone gunmen against the you know they has to defend you know defend the village and teach the villagers to defend themselves against the band of marauders like it's 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 been done a thousand times, um, and I think like the the episode's uh, short runtime is both its saving grace and also kind of its core flaw because it's its saving grace because since we've seen it all before 
you know, it moves fast. You know, it does its job. It's it's nice. And we and we never get tired and bored. But it also moves so fast that I don't think it can entirely tell the story it's trying to tell. Um, like they're trying to do a lot of character work with the Mandalorian, with uh, Cara Dune, with uh, Omera. I think your name is the the widow, mm-hmm. the widow farmer. Um, and like it's all the Favreau's writing is just all so perfunctory and to the point that it does it it works just on a bare basic level, but it never. It, it never quite reaches, I think, where it needs to to make this kind of story f- work. But also, I feel like if they devoted any more time to it, we just get bored because we've seen it a hundred times before. So it kind of it's both good and bad that it's only forty minutes long. Yeah, I I'm one to think that like if if a character is interesting, like you can take them on similar, take them through similar tropes, and if, if the style and and world is is an enjoyable place to occupy, then then I'll walk through those again. And so this is the episode that I, I mainly think of when I think about uh, that initial criticism I brought up earlier in the episode of just the show. It, like a lot of these episodes exist to uh, facilitate these kind of Western tropes, but in this Star Wars way. Um, and it like, you know, following through on the trope is the ultimate goal. And so I think of all of the of all of the episodes, this is the one where like these. Um, it, I was su- I was surprised at how short the episodes were. We didn't talk about that um, whenever oh, yeah. uh, we were talking about our first impressions. I was really I I thought for sure it was going to be like fifty two minute episodes in the like minimum. Um, I was expecting like hour long, um, but uh, but this is the one that I feel like suffers the most from this. Uh, runtime because at least with the others you know we, we talked about how there is you do get a sense of of being rushed especially with that first one um and you know it's it's part of why the show doesn't feel super emotionally or thematically substantial um but they're in one way like they're able to do that because they're not they're not trying for that you know um they can only feel so like you can only feel so rushed if you're only trying so much. Whereas here they are trying to dig deeper into the Mandalorian as a character and, and where his mind is at. And um, I, I think, you know, it, it, there's a bit of decent character work, but the price that they're paying for having to try to go into a more character centric episode is that you're, you're not really extending the runtime. And so, it feels really, really rushed. Like by the end of it, I don't know how much of a of a journey I really feel he went on. Yeah, and like, and I don't know that Favreau in this show is the guy to give us that character. You know, just look at how how in depth the rest of the episodes are. I don't know that he would have done much more, even if he had more time. Yeah, and it's also just like this this of all of the Western trips. Like this is also one that does feel like. It, it's hard to pull this one off in 40 minutes, you know, like it, th- this kind of story lends itself to cool montages and stuff. But this, we really do just kind of go from like, okay, fine. And then like 30 second montage. And then we're, we're ready. Oh, um, I timed it. It's like, a, it's like a minute and 40 seconds of deciding to fight to we're all trained in this and the village is fortified. <laughs> yeah. Like this, that's it. It feels like, a substantial amount of time should have passed and this movie just like it trucks through a lot of time in a way that it feels really off like 
Yeah. I, I, I wish, I, I wonder if there was like, I, I guess there was a, you know, just a, a time mandate, but, uh, but I wish that this one could have, could have gone a bit longer. I feel like it's, it's like three or four scenes away from being a really strong episode. Yeah. And that's, I like this one a lot. I, I, I just love the change of pace, the change of scenery. Um, the whole, the whole thing of the village and the Raiders like that. I think, uh, Howard is actually a really effective director. Um, she has some issues that I'll get into later, but I think she, like just the visual storytelling, just that that opening sequence and the raid, it's all just very effective. Um, uh, getting across the point, you know, we have the serenity that that's just broken out. The pirates they just come out of the mist and it, bringing terror, you know, fear and danger, and then they just kind of dissolve into the mist, leaving just chaos behind them. And it, it only it takes like you know it happens in like a minute. But we just we like instantly just we get the point. Yeah. And framing it from the and, perspective uh, of like just one of the the fishermen out there, or not the fishermen, but just like one of the villagers out there, I do think like it's the the perspective of that scene. I think is really uh, is really effective. Yeah, and the the, the pirates they're basically orcs. Yep, I got a like, strong Lord of the Rings vibe in that first scene. Yeah, and also I think this episode gives us the best Baby Yoda up to, up, up till now. Mm-hmm. Um, just. Him, like, I I know Bry- uh, Bryce Dallas Howard has several children, and like the, the scenes with him, you know, just being a parent with a baby are so well observed. Like where he's sitting on the dashboard, just pressing buttons. Stop that! <laughs> it's like where he looks at him and reaches over and presses it. Like every, I uh, think kids like <laughs> they do that. They really really have a death wish. Um, just <laughs> call you you little womp rat. <laughs> Uh, they're so adorable together. Or where he, he keeps leaving Baby Yoda around, like stay, stay here, okay? Got it. There, Good. There's something about <laughs> Baby Yoda's little waddle of a walk that's just adorable. Uh huh. He's a he's a terrible father. <laughs> he's trying. He's trying. He's really trying. Um, he's just trying to be a single dad. You know, it's a it's a tough life. A- after the fight with Cara Dune, Baby Yoda's just sitting there sipping his broth. Oh, it's so beautiful. You want some soup? Um, Cara Dune, how do you feel about her? I'm I'm conflicted. and I'm of two minds. On one hand, I don't think she's a great actress. I think that there's a lot of, like, several line readings where I'm like, this, this feels like a line reading. It feels like you looked at the script two minutes ago and you're just like give like just a, a passing kind of like, okay, so it'd be something like this. And it's like, it's obviously you're not shooting or like acting for the scene, but you're getting the gist of it. That's how a lot of her lines feel to me on the other side of it. And maybe this is just influenced by like watching her at panels and stuff. Like she's very excited. She's just, she's super happy to be a part of all of this. And I don't know if it is that or... Oh, she's trying. Like, you can see it. Yeah, like, I think that there is, like, there's a lot of effort there. And there's also, like, it just, it seems like she really likes the character. She likes being there. And so I think the the fun that she's having in the role, um, and I, I even whenever her acting isn't great, I do think she brings, like, like a fun... Per- like, there's a fun personality to Cara Dune that I like. And I, I think that what I like about it has especially by the end of the season has kind of helped outweigh my initial like ah this is like she's obviously not a professional actor like the way these other people are Mm -hmm. 
I, I kind of feel like she was miscast. Um, I think this is one of the places where the stunt casting in the show kind of hurts. And I, again, like, you know, she is enthusiastic and she's trying. So I, I, I hate to bash on her, um, but she's, you know, she's not an actress. And I, I think she would probably agree with that assessment. And you know, she's trying, but she just like any, I think like when she's just being like very, very mildly snarky and kind of smirking, she works. But like anytime she has to like try to imbue any kind of emotion or ex, you know, exposition, it's just not good. Um, and I think like the character itself isn't terribly well realized, like well written. Like it, there is potential, like the whole the haunted soldier with PTSD hiding from the world aspect. That's interesting, but I don't. But it's not all that much there on the page, and she's just not a good enough actress to bring anything out herself. So I, I just wish they got someone else. Um, and because she has, you know, she's uh, has a big part in, in this episode, and she comes back for you know a huge part later on. And I feel like it would have just strengthened the show all around if they had someone who could who could just do it, you know, do it do it well. Um, but she can fight. Like the hand to hand combat's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's why they have so much of it. She's great at that. Um, yeah, so we we get to the village. Uh, oh, the, the the two farmers. Have you seen uh, uh, Kira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress? No, but I've seen them compared to them. because uh, because you know, like it's that's what who C three PO and R two D two are often compared to. Yeah, The Hidden Fortress. Like when you watch that movie, a lot of the plot points. Uh, Lucas took and applied to a new hope. And yeah, the, 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 these two bumbling farmer characters. It's pretty funny. Like, it's the you know, it's the showing the world from the perspective of the peasants, where all these like f- warring lords and clans are like sw- are swirling around them, and they're just trying to survive in the middle of it, which is very much like C three PO and R two D two. Like, <laughs> they're they're in a war. That, at least C at least C three PO is in a war that he doesn't understand. Um, so like that aspect, of the, and there's two very bumbling farmers, and I, I felt. At first, when I first saw those two characters, I was kind of put off. Like, what are they doing here? They're, they're kind of weird. But I and I don't know if this is an actually a reference. But if it is, it would make me so happy. Um, the fact that you know that this is you know based on Akira Kurosawa's um, you know Seven Samurai and just ha- bringing that reference in would be really cool. I don't know if it is, but I like to think that it is. Yeah. So there's them and uh, Omera. I I, 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 she also isn't done any favors by by the runtime, but I, there are some really interesting little touches to her character. Like, do you get the idea that she would that she actually wasn't born in this village, that she's like an ex soldier, a warrior of some kind? That like that's based off of entirely like just her with the gun. Um, but I got a vibe. Well, like, that's that. I have some of them. Okay. So, well, if if there's more, like I then I would I could definitely see myself being convinced because that. For me, it is mainly just um, that that visual there of just she feels as if she's prepared, because I didn't think it was just like the oh you know, I I don't know I I usually hate people being good at things for absolutely no reason. So for me, with 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 that happening, I'm like okay, so there there's a past here with this character. She more than anyone else there knows that this is gonna be what needs to get done. Oh yeah, that, that that's obviously the big scene. Um, there are other little moments, uh, where especially when she's interacting with the Mandalorian, and like I feel like she completely gets what he's going through. Like she doesn't freak out or even look at all disturbed when uh when he almost pulls the gun on her daughter. Like she just kind of works, you know, in roundabout ways to reassure him. That she's like constantly being reassuring, like you know, it's fine, it'll be fine. 
and like and just trying to get him calmed down and acclimated and and I love the way she gives him his space and doesn't ask like ask very minimal questions like and she'll only ask a question here or there that's kind of like leading to try and get him to stay like I feel like she she really gets who he is and where he's from and like understands like what he's going through and his fears and whatnot like I don't know just something about the way she was able to empathize with him and kind of the very interesting way she dealt with him and, and his quirks and foibles um, really kind of gave me the impression that she had some kind of past and understood. Yeah, I could see that. The Her lines are all so very pointed to kind of, to get to him. And this is where we, we find out, you know, that Mando has worn the helmet since he was a child, um, which kind of destroys my theory that the, the, this, this stupid custom was uh, created uh after after the after the purge. Speaking of which, how do you we have talked? I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. How do you feel about the entire you know he never takes off his helmet thing in the show? Uh, the only thing I don't like about it is the the seeming contradiction of established lore. Like I don't, I know, uh, like I I don't feel like it's oh it's the coolest thing ever. But it, within the context of the show, I don't mind it at all. Um. I, I like the idea that we don't see it up until the big reveal at the end. Like, I mean, it's it's just Pedro Pascal. It's not a surprise, but it, it like that moment feels effective because it's been hidden. Um, so any dislike I have of it is is this kind of like this is not what seems to be established canon right now. Uh, for me, I don't like it really. I, I it's I just think it's a gimmick. Like, oh, he's so cool. He doesn't take his helmet off. He's like dread, and like just I, I don't I don't find that makes a character cool. Like. In the history of cinema, you look at all the awesome, cool characters we have. Most of them, you can see their face, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't in any way inhibit them being awesome. And like, I feel like every single emotional scene or just like character moment would be better if we could see his face. Like, and that's not to say it's bad. Like, it works. It works, and they they do well enough. But I feel like it's it's just a handicap that is present in every single scene, just limiting its 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 ability to emotionally connect because. People have faces for a reason. Um, it just feels like kind of a cheap gimmick. That said, I do appreciate that they give it a dramatic purpose within the show. Like they could have just done it and not explained it, and I think it would have been really stupid. Like they give it a reason, the whole the whole Mandalorian custom thing. Ah, but still, I just wish they just didn't do it. It just it, it feels so pointless to me in the end. Yeah, I I think that's where that's where we disagree because for me, I I think what I found so surprising about it was despite what i would have assumed going into it 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 never felt for me to be a handicap i i think part of it is there is how uh, how there's so little i think we, we talk about it feels very slight and there's very little emotion and very little drama i think a good part of that comes from the fact that we don't like every other show we get a hundred thousand little moments little looks and things and just just looking into their eyes i think brings an emotional connection that is just simply unavailable. See, and I, but I wouldn't say it's unavailable because I feel like you. I think on one hand, if there was like a thematic reason, like he is as somebody who, who does just create these emotional barriers. I feel like the helmet actually act like serves as a good physical, like, item that represents these these barriers that he has in play. You know, like there's something about this child that's drawing him out like bef maybe with with any other thing you know he would have he would have you know gone through with the bounty and never asked the question but this is something that's kind of poking poking at this this part of him and just with like 
like whenever he is sitting there and you can see baby Yoda's hand coming up and just like that that slight helmet tilt like that says everything that I feel like I need to know and and in scenes whenever you know she's talking to him and she's about to take it off him grabbing her hands and and keeping his helmet still on like I I feel like there's it not even not only to me has it not like inhibited emotional connection but I, I feel like there have been added benefits of of its inclusion um i don't know I, I i don't know of any scenes that i feel like oh if only i could have seen his eyes i think there would have been that connection yeah i i, I just there's something about like associating everything i know about the character with that helmet with that look to the, like and the physical performance being as good as it is that like these these tilts these nods just all of this creates this character I, I will say that I think it's done as well as it could possibly be done. I just think it's kind of a bad idea overall. Yeah, then they go that 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 montage is uh, is kind of adorable. The, the the music is what makes it. Um, I feel like when we get into the montage and later on the Bay action sequence, I think this is where uh a kind of a, a pitfall of Howard's choice and direction kind of comes out. Uh, where. In the other scenes, I really appreciated that they were shot in these, like, you know, these wide, long takes, very, you know, minimal camera movement. However, she doesn't really change that style when she goes into the action or into the montage. And you, I, you do feel a little bit that lack of energy. Like, I, I'm not saying, you know, just go all shaky cam quick cut, but I think, you know, you, your cinematic style needs to be adapted, you know, to the tone and, and, you know, the tone and feel of whatever scene they're in. And I feel like just a little bit more movement, a little bit, you know, a little bit sharper editing, just more, more purposeful editing, more, just a bit more energy. I, I still love that. I still love the climax, but I think if she just, you know, just changed up her style just a little bit, it would have been that much better. Yeah. With the exception, I think being the, the chase, like the ATST chase out of the woods. I, I think that that scene is pretty amazing. Uh, I got a lot of Jurassic to me. I I couldn't watch that scene without seeing like replacing the ATST with a T Rex in my mind. And like, cause it a T Rex with lasers. Like that's to me like having having seen like the the Jurassic Park films as often as I have. There's just something about like that low, like that kind of low angle or the the camera being low, looking upward at this thing. It's just about the right height, weaving in and through trees. Like my mind just translates that into like, oh okay, we're on a jeep. But, this is what we're doing, and maybe she's channeling something there. You know, I mean, I mean, she she's been it, she's acted in two Jurassic World movies, so I I wouldn't doubt it. Exactly, you know, I, you know this is this experience. Yeah, the the red eyes, all like all of that is so beautiful. The shot of the uh, the ATSC, you know, uh, framed on one side, and the village on the other, the ponds in the middle. It's so beautiful. Feels very much like Ryan Johnson with the Last Jedi of just getting these big sweeping wide frames. Like the whole the composition has so much within it, and I think this this battle sequence is, a, is another example of really great use of the one eighty line, where we just know like the camera's pointed this way, we're, we're you know we're, we're on the side of the villagers, other side it's the raiders, and just the entire scene is really it's really easy to follow, um, whereas it could have gotten really chaotic if they didn't you know follow if she didn't follow that rule so closely, um. I think the whole the whole battle is pretty well done. It's just the intensity of like a car doom being trapped in the pond as the thing standing over just blasting the edge. Uh, the way the Mando, the Mando's music comes in when he charges in with with the detonator. Um, just really fun sequence. 
And then the end, we we go back to peace, and the, everyone's happy, and Baby Yoda is eating frogs. <laughs> the image of him with the with the frogs' uh, back legs hanging out of his <laughs> mouth. Uh, it's just lovely. And just ba- Baby Yoda with other children is so sweet. And uh, I love I love Omero's line. I uh, he's happier, fits right in. Like, like I know what you're doing, and a car just smirking in the background. It's like, why don't you just sit on down with a beautiful will, you know, beautiful widow, you silly little boy. Um, and uh, also, um, her her other line, you know, you and your boy can have a good life. He can be a child for a while. Wouldn't that be nice? Kind of calling back to the earlier conversation where he, he was talking about you know, he didn't ha- he wasn't able to have a real childhood. He was taken from him, and now offering the possibility of a, a childhood to his own his own son. Um, she really isn't playing fair in these conversations. <laughs> and then, of course, we get one of the most horrific images of all of cinema, which is Baby Yoda in the crosshairs. Oh my gosh! Like I genuinely didn't know what was what they were going to do because, like, this is the moment where you do you know, you're happy, so you make it dark. Like that's how story tell- stories are done. But like, do they dare kill Baby Yoda? It's like the most stressful two seconds of my life. But no, they saved him, and all is well. Honestly, like, I will be very happy if it, the the end of the show is him coming back to this village and settling down. Yeah, I think that'd be a solid ending. Like, I don't, I don't need the fake, you know, toughness of the Mandalorian to keep my helmet on because I'm badass, whatever. <laughs> Gabe just wants his rom com with the happy village widow. And I thought I do want to talk about the score for Sanctuary. Uh, this is my favorite score of the entire Mandalorian thing. Uh, I, I, it's like we, we get an entirely new direct directorial style, entirely new you know visual location, and then an like entirely new style of score, and it's really lovely. Like there's the, there's a theme for the main village, and the main village theme is this lovely soothing guitar recorder and the strings, um, and then the really uh, this 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 track is the the ponds of of uh, Sorgon, um, this really creepy haunting note announcing the arrival of the danger. And then we get this heavy brass and percussion um, of the danger theme or like it's like danger slash action theme. Um, it's like really brutal and overwhelming. Uh, I think the, the Isengard, you know, slash Urukai theme from the from uh, the Lord of the Rings. This is, you know, uh, that's pr- it's a very similar sound and kind of similar purpose is this huge and scary and thrilling. Then there's off the grid. And we get this kind of very serene and free Mando theme, which is really unique and quite lovely. And then there's a training the plebes, which is the the, uh, the the montage music. It starts with this like tender, sweet, defanged version of the action danger theme. That's like it's like trying to be all martial and tough, but it's it's actually kind of adorable. Um, and then the Mandal- the Mandalorian theme comes in and takes over a bit. Then the action thing comes back with you know more urgency and body. It's still in like kind of high string, so it's it's not it's not what it needs to be, but it's more promising and like it's showing determination. Um, then we get the bombastic action theme that comes in, and it's it was very confident and triumphant rather than like in the, in the beginning it was like brutal and scary, but this time it's like very you know very fun and big and bombastic. Um, just very, I, I just love the way the themes are woven throughout that 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 track it, that track in particular, kind of telling the story. Um, then there's Spirit of the Woods. It starts with this very dangerous kind of Stranger Things techno. Um, then moves into a you know very focused, urgent kind of action theme, which gets gets pro- you know progressively more urgent and scary uh, before turning into the triumphant Mando theme at the end. 
Um, the final one is uh, Mando says goodbye. Um, it's this. It's you know, going back to the you know, the very peaceful, sweet, rich village theme, but this time it's kind of tinged by sadness. You know, the guitar is still there, but the strings are kind of leading the music. Um, and then my favorite bit is where we get we get to the Mando theme, but it's played with the village's instruments, like you know the guitar and you know, the flutes. And like it, so, it's played with the, with the instruments that we've had playing this very sweet, peaceful village music. But now it's playing the Mando theme, and it's like this perfect, just poetic harmony. And it, honestly, like my my heart just exploded when I heard that. It's not right to hear that, you know, with Baby Yoda being taken away on that cart. Exactly. Um, it's cruel and beautiful. Uh, but th- th- yeah, I really, really love uh, what he did. It's just the various themes he created just, just for this episode and the way he wove them in and out. All right, so uh, let's move into uh, how would you rank uh, these four episodes so far? Uh, so I would do um, probably two, four, one, three. Uh, so the child sanctuary, uh, the Mandalorian, the sin. Yes. Um, two, like uh, okay. two, is the one that I just have like no complaints with. I I just really really love that episode. I think four, like I said, has the one where like it it feels the most rushed of them all because it's trying to do probably more than most of them. Uh, but like you said, just the the refreshing visuals and like there's a lot about it that just even with the entire season, you know, finished now that episode still kind of stands out. Um, and then you know we've kind of talked about what we liked and disliked about one and three. That's interesting. Uh, my, my ranking, well, I do have a uh, chapter two, the child on top. Then I have the sin, uh, then sanctuary, then the Mandalorian. Yep. All right. So uh, we, we're going to talk about the critical and audience reception uh, next week when we finish the show. Um. So that was our discussion on the first four episodes of the Mandalorian. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you guys to please uh, take a moment to go and give us a rating review on iTunes. If you want to like us on Facebook, you can find us there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisePod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hammer. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And uh, speaking of Star Wars, you can also follow us over on The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group on Facebook. Uh, we are still finding a lot of discussion going on there. We're... we're coming towards or we're not coming towards the end where are we in uh the clone wars season in terms of how much we have left uh five more episodes okay so so we still we're right in the middle of this last season um so there's a lot of discussion going on uh so if you love star wars and you love talking about it positively definitely feel free to join us over there and i'm also on letterboxd and there's gabriel green uh you can find me on instagram as gabe the great green and i have a youtube channel called uh, greenery 01 where i make these um, these uh, film-based music videos um, next week, uh, we're going to talk about the final four episodes of The Mandalorian and finish out the season. So until next week, we will see you in the same season. I have spoken. I have spoken.